You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour with host General Grange and co-host Ranger Doug. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Ranger Doug. Welcome to Veterans Radio Hour 2.0. This is our 18th program and the third in a series, Russia Moves Into Ukraine. Tonight, I'm joined by Dr. Brian Downing, independent journalist, Dr. Richard Downey, a retired Army officer and also a retired member of the Senior Executive Service, and Mr. Doug Wise, a retired member of the CIA's Senior Intelligence Service, the equivalent of a four-star general, also retired Army officer. Mr. Wise has been with us before and has two master's degrees in related fields. And I have, for degrees, let me check, 96.8. Tonight we're going to be very careful. We're only speaking from open source material. We're not doing anything classified, and we're doing our best to try not to warn the Russians and the Chinese about what the United States and its allies might be up to. Let's talk to our guests. Thank you. Well, thanks, Ranger Doug. I appreciate the opportunity and uh, serving on the on this podcast with distinguished guests. I was a career military officer and ended up uh, being uh, seconded or detailed to CIA for the last five years of my career. And then I spent uh, the next 30 years with CIA in the clandestine service. I had the opportunity for 11 overseas tours. I was stationed four times. I did uh, three tours in Afghanistan. I did two tours in Iraq. I did five tours in the Balkans, among others. And so, you know, I've had an opportunity to serve from literally practitioner to my last assignment, which was as the deputy director of the Defense Intelligence Agency. Back to you, Ranger Doug. Thank you, Doug. Richard, introduce yourself, please. Oh, thanks, Ranger Doug. I, it's a real pleasure for me to be here as well. I'm really uh, honored to be able to be a guest with uh, my colleagues, my very distinguished colleagues. Um, I was, like Doug, a career military officer. I was an infantryman and also a foreign area officer, and I served uh, over in Germany, in Colombia, in Panama, Mexico, uh, Bosnia. I had a great, great time doing it. After I retired, I became the director of the William Perry Center for Hemispheric Defense Studies in Washington, D.C., which is the uh, Department of Defense's uh, Regional Security Studies Center for the Americas. And uh, since I retired, uh, I've, from there, I've been doing consulting work and uh, doing some teaching uh, and that sort of thing. So, but uh, again, very pleased to be here and, and looking forward to this conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. And uh, Brian, would you please introduce yourself? All right. I'm Brian Downing. I went to graduate school at the University of Chicago and postdoc Harvard. Taught for a few years and then just went off on my own writing and uh, doing things that I wanted to do. And I was 30 some years ago. Uh, Army veteran, three years, one year Vietnam with South Vietnamese. Thank you. Live in Florida at the moment. Oh, wonderful. Well, and and uh, truth be told, I've worked with each of these gentlemen uh, before. So uh, the first question that I'd like to ask of our panel tonight is to describe what you saw or thought in the run-up to the start of the war. And we'll begin with Doug Wise. Doug, over to you. Thanks, Ranger Doug. Uh, a very useful question. Uh, my own perspective in the run-up to the war was it was no surprise to me that Vladimir Putin invaded uh, Ukraine. Uh, he was very clear in his intent. He has been saying that, uh, that he was going to do that uh, for years. Uh, for him, it was uh, extremely personal, and all of that personal aspect was reflected in everything he said and everything he did up until the time that he gave the order to invade Ukraine. He had said that uh, he wasn't going to invade Chechnya, and he did. He destroyed the city of Grozny. He said he wasn't going to invade uh, the country of Georgia, and he did. He said he wasn't going to annex Crimea, and he did. He said he wasn't going to aid and abet the separatists in Ukraine, and in fact he did. So when he said he wasn't going to 
invade Ukraine, you know, I knew for a fact that he would. And if you looked at the signature of the disposition and composition of Russian forces along the border, he positioned the significant forces to the north out of Belarus because it's the fastest way to get to Kiev. And he obviously had forces to the northeast and to the south and west. And he had uh, obviously issued the order uh, to, to invade. So Putin, as I said, this is a very personal issue. For him, uh, Ukraine was a, a rough separatist state in and of itself, was perfectly fine and an abiding part of the Russian Federation and Imperial Russia up until the time that uh, 2014 happened and the, the courageous citizens of Ukraine decided that they would rather be free and democratic rather than under the autocratic, you know, heavy thumb of Russia. So at that point in time is when he started to speak, and if you listen to what he had to say in, in native Russian, it's very obvious the choice of vocabulary, the syntax, you know, the, the nationalistic tone, the very rural, the guttural, uh, to appeal to the, to the, to the raw of Russia nationalism that he was trying to engender inside Russia as part of his leadership uh, over, over the period of time he had been in power. And so what he said, his actions antecedent to invading Ukraine, the positioning and composition of his forces, and where they were located, the borders of Ukraine, it was very obvious to me that he was going to follow through on the threat that he had made, and, in fact, in spite of his denial that he was going to invade and occupy Ukraine, the fact is that he actually gave the order, and we're now seeing the tragic results of, of this invasion, which is obviously not gone according to plan and has resulted in just extraordinary impacts to, to Ukraine, Ukrainian people, humanitarian tragedy, probably that will continue for years after after cessation of, of hostilities. So, Ranger Doug, back to you. Great. Thank you, Doug. Richard, then over to you. Um, thank you, Ranger Doug. Um, you know, despite all of the, uh, seeing all the things that Doug just mentioned, that Doug Wise just mentioned, um, I have to confess that I was skeptical in the run-up to the war that, that Putin was actually going to do it. I mean, it, it, it uh, makes great sense, uh, the way Doug has described it, and I think it should have been obvious. I thought it was very uh, a very good action on the U.S. part for us to use sort of this deterrence by revelation of, of U.S. intelligence to say all along the way that, that, that Russians were planning to attack and, and exactly what they were planning to do, false flag operations, all those kinds of things. Um, and I thought that was very effective, but it was interesting to me, and I, I felt the same way a little bit about uh, that President Zelensky said, which was in effect that, uh, hey, hey, United States President Biden, please stop calling Wolf because, about the Russians invading because, you know, it's ruining our economy. Uh, so, you know, it was a bit of a surprise, I know, for, for him and for uh, many in Europe. Uh, it shouldn't have been a surprise for all the reasons that Doug mentioned, but I, I have to confess I was a bit skeptical. What, what did surprise me uh, greatly, though, was how poorly the, uh, the Russian military forces have performed uh, as part of this. But I, I think that's something we'll talk about later. So uh, back to you. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. Thank you very much. Uh, Brian, then over to you. Same question. I was, I was fully expecting Putin to invade ever since last I thought that was clear. I did not, however, expect so sweeping an invasion. I thought he would uh, invade, occupy, and quickly annex the eastern areas that have already declared themselves autonomous. And I expected uh, a land bridge down to the Crimea, which he took several years ago. I further expected an invasion from Belarus aiming at Kiev. I never thought he would besiege the area. I thought he would just drive his troops there and say, here, you want more? You can get it. I want you to seize eastern Ukraine to me now. But we are getting uh, a, a, a more sweeping invasion. It looks like he wants to take over the whole country. We're seeing uh, drives into the northeast, 
the north and across the south. Uh, and this is probably one of the greatest military blunders in, his, in European history for the last 75 years. Ranger Doug, if I could jump on that, add a comment. Absolutely. Is, well, Richard, um, I mean, in the end, the people who knew the rush were the Ukrainians, and even they were surprised because they were blind. They were blinded by the lens. They were looking at the Russians, which had been the, the lens that showed that many Ukrainians lived in Russia and many Russians lived in Ukraine. And, in Ukraine. and so uh, I don't think any of us who, who you know, misjudge Putin at any point in, the, in this tragic journey, you know, can really uh, criticize ourselves. But it is very easy, I think, for all of us on, uh, in the West to, to just naturally, without thinking, and without even being conscious of it, that we look at Putin through our own cultural lens, and we try to extract from, from what we're seeing, you know, some semblance of the way we make decisions, and and the uh, Western core values and, and that moral and ethical framework, and taking in data and being receptive to data and making informed decisions. But the reality is, uh, you know, Putin is not not a Westerner. He, he has a whole different perspective. You've got to keep in mind that the Russians have an ethos that says we don't have to win as long as you lose. So there's very little for, for Russia to, to lose in every game. This was a very personal, emotional, visceral decision by Putin. He wasn't interested. In fact, he wasn't interested in input. He'd already made the decision. And uh, so in the end, you know, we look at Putin and go, if any of us, we would have immediately assessed that, A, there were, there were other tools available short of, uh, as Brian says, you know, massive invasion in, uh, in violation of Ukrainian sovereignty. That's what we would have done. And so we looked through that hopeful lens and trying to figure out whether Putin would, would like make the same kind of decision we'd make. And he's not us, and he doesn't make decisions that way, and he's never going to. And so, you know, I think those of us that have spent a lot of time, you know, dealing with Russian issues in my CIA career, so none of this was a, a surprise to me. And I, I, re, I agree with Richard. I think the unprecedented use of intelligence to inform Western citizens, why we're making certain decisions, and to help uh, foreign leaders, you know, make informed decisions as well, and maybe send a message to the adversary also. Anyway, back to you, Ranger. Well, that's great. Thank you. We're going to pause now for a commercial. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. From Russia. VDAC, an online application that helps veterans research and file for their VA disabilities, empowering the veteran to take full control of your claim. Find out more by going to our website, nifv.org, and clicking on the VDAC button. Once again, our website is nifv.org and click on VDAC. The trucking industry was born by the military during World War I and therefore became the father of the trucking industry. Being a truck driver achieved national attention in the 1960s when songs and movies included truck driving as a part of the storyline. If you're looking for an easy job that pays well, then GTS Transportation is looking for you. GTS Transportation is a leading transportation company with a great history. We are an international company with opportunities all around the world. Apply now by going to our website, gtscarrier.com, or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. Apply now and become a part of truck driving history. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. 
High quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. Welcome back to Veterans Radio Hour. And here's Ranger Doug. Ladies and gentlemen, we're back. Veterans Radio Hour 2.0, our 18th program. This is Russia Moves Into Ukraine. The topic for tonight is what are we not seeing and when will we see it? I think only until after some time has gone by will we be able to say whether there were signals at which time it might have been possible to have avoided this. But I did not see any attempt at real diplomacy to try to get to some other uh, outcome that, uh, you know, menace a bit with force and then ask for something. Uh, There was nothing really that anyone could satisfy. So, yes, I was with Richard thinking that there might not be one, but I said if it would happen, and I've articulated it on two other programs, I believe we'll see that it coalesces towards uh, the... Uh, what they've actually asked for, which is a recognition of the seeding, C-E-D-I-N-G, of Luhansk and Donetsk and of Crimea, and to change the constitution to avoid joining any alliances and to recognize the cessation, or the cession, I should say, of uh, those territories. And we'll see. The, the countrywide uh, attack may have been necessary to paralyze certain aspects And we'll get into some of that as we discuss uh, in later questions. I'm going to move to the second question then, which is, at this point in time, thinking about it now, what are the war aims of Russia and of Mr. Putin? Uh, They're probably the same, but in some ways they may differ. And of course, Mr. Putin does rule over several different oligarchies. Uh, There might be some some grist for the mill in there. And uh, we'll open then with Richard. Richard? Uh, Thanks, Ranger Doug. Uh, no, actually, I'd go back on your your point there that the war aims of Putin and Russia. I I think it's more the aims of Putin because it appears that the, most of Russia doesn't agree that with what he's trying to do in Ukraine, at least those who are able to voice their displeasure. But uh, having said that, I I do think that uh, as going back to what Doug mentioned earlier, this is something that Putin has wanted to do all along. He has said for years that uh, he has wanted to restore the pre-1991 Soviet unity uh, of, the, of the past. And I think he's, we've seen this in various ways. Uh, so, you know, it, this seemed like a, a, a useful opportunity for him. When you, you look at, at 2008, when Russia invaded Georgia, you look at 2014, when he took, uh, essentially seized Crimea, and then back separatists in Ukraine, and there was very little repercussion for uh, for Russia in any of this. And so he saw that the U.S. was withdrawing from Afghanistan, seemed to be losing its leadership of the West. There's tremendous political polarization in uh, the United States, lack of unity in, in NATO, and saw that this would be the time for him to do what he has wanted to do, which is essentially establish a buffer zone between Russia and the West. And um, I, I think he thought, and what he would ideally would have liked to have uh, done a lightning-style attack into Ukraine, uh, taking over Kiev, establishing a puppet government with a leader similar to Lukashenko, President Lukashenko in Belarus, where you have a government that essentially does whatever Putin wants. And I thought, uh, I think he, he actually believed he could make that happen. As we've seen, uh, it, it really did not happen. So uh, I think the, the he's going to continue, his aim is to continue to uh, go after the Ukrainians. I mean, to the point of, of war crimes, this bomb bombardment of cities, hospitals, it, it's really terrible. But uh, the question is, for me, and maybe it's something we can talk about later, but uh, is how far that Putin is going to be willing to go to achieve those aims of getting that buffer control of, 
of Ukraine to, to make a buffer zone. But back to you. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Richard. Brian, over to you. Well, uh, I echo, I'll echo that, that uh, the decision is Putin's. It's not made by any foreign policy team. The people around him are not going to contradict him. I think he still thinks he can win. Uh, if there's anything off his timetable, what's the problem? It's his generals, right? They're not aggressive enough. They're not ruthless enough. They're not murderous enough. And I think that's why we've seen the pickup of uh, bomb, bombing of cities, uh, artillery rounds. And I would not be surprised, unfortunately, that uh, if we see chemical weapons used on Ukrainian cities within a week, Putin just thinks it's a matter of applying the right power. Excellent comment, and I agree. Back to Doug. Thank you. Uh, Doug, over to you. Yeah, I mean, I actually have very little to add to what uh, Richard and, uh, and Brian have said, particularly what, what Brian said at the end. Uh, which is the escalation of barbarism and ruthlessness. My words, not Brian's, but it's what the intent was. Yeah. I agree 100%. I think Putin thought this was going to be the blitzkrieg. It was going to be over. Ukraine was going to just surrender. The government was going to run into exile. And that he would be able, he would be sitting there raising the Russian flag over Kiev and installing a puppet government. And then maintaining the Russian army there long enough for that government to reach puberty and young adulthood and survive on its own, which I think was, was taken a, a fair amount of time anyway. And so exactly what uh, both Richard and Brian said, you know, the, the Russian military has been lying to each other all the way from every manager and every worker and every factory that produced equipment for the Russian military. The Russian training and the professional development system was rotten to the core and corrupt. Yeah. And then when the entire nation and society of Russia is a culture and a nation of deception and lies and prevarication, it's no surprise yeah. that the concept of truth to power was an alien concept. And then I think absolutely, <laughs> having said all that, I think in the end, exactly what Brian said, this was a personal decision by Putin. This was not a a decision that was recommended by a, by a foreign policy committee of yeah. some point. But I think what, uh, as a consequence, you know, I think Putin's frustration has, has now gotten to the point where he said, you'll bring this to a close, you'll be as ruthless as you have to be, there are no rules, and so he's essentially licensed, you know, wholesale uh, genocide level of indiscriminate killing of civilians and destruction of uh, of Ukraine. I mean, literally, before eyes, he's, he's applying right now the Marshal Zhukov uh, doctrine of just destroying everything in the path of the Russian army on its way to Berlin, 1945. And so, you know, you're going to see that kind of behavior. And, uh, you know, the Russians are very, very good at this kind of ruthlessness. But I think they're about ready to settle into their own uh, forever war because the notion that they're going to install a puppet government with surviving Ukrainians it may be a fantasy that Putin holds, but it's not going to happen because there's going to be zero Ukrainians that are going to roger up to be Zelensky 2.0. And uh, the lifespan of that guy is going to be 24 hours, and then you're going to have to replace <laughs> He's going to last maybe 24 hours, and then the third candidate is going to be pointing fingers at everybody else. And so it's not something as simple as finding a replacement head of state and have an effective government. You've got to replace everybody all the way down to the postmaster, down to the first responder, the cop on the beat, the, the mayors, the deputy mayors, all of the people that wrote the water, the electricity. And so it's the entire structure of government needs to be replaced. And that's challenging enough. And then when now the Russians set upon the path, of, as Brian indicated, of destroying the infrastructure and the ability to govern. And so uh, this is going to be just a horrible outcome. And then obviously it goes without saying that the humanitarian crisis is, and I think Brian may have mentioned it, humanitarian crisis is you know, the worst one since uh, World War II. And it's all been done. And uh, the Russians have now, you know, set upon a path. It's going to be very difficult to bring it to conclusion. 
going to be borderline impossible to accomplish Putin's personal, emotional, visceral aims of punishing and, and imposing righteous corporate corporal punishment on the entire people of Ukraine. I mean, this is just personal anger, and the army, the Russian military, is going to reflect that. The only good news is that the Russian military, which I think we're going to address later, has acquitted themselves in a completely bad fashion, just incompetence at all, bad equipment, bad players, bad soldiers, and that's why they're going to result in no rules, barbarism, because you don't have to be well-trained to commit genocide, quite frankly. Back to you, Andrew Doug. Thanks, Doug. I, I want to just make one comment, too, that, you know, it's uh, obvious that in the use of weapons of mass destruction in assassinations, the case of Alexander Litvinenko in London with polonium, and then uh, the case of the Skripals and possibly others that we don't know about with this new poison, Novichok, uh, just like Kim Jong-un had done by assassinating his half-brother, uh, Kim Jong-nam in Kuala Lumpur with VX, uh, another nerve agent. Uh, he'd already breached the WMD threshold. And so his threats of uh, and, and positioning of weapons to actually say that I am ready to use nuclear weapons, including those on board submarines, um, is something you would have to expect. And what he's been able to do now is open that up to blunt uh, anyone else's actions because it tends to frighten uh, world leaders today. Whether or not we think he would use them, obviously the world leaders do and uh, this has uh, given us a strange situation when looking at past wars of, of uh, a large nature where the leaders all had about the same amount of courage and the ability to uh, more or less walk a tightrope based on their own decisions. This guy is operating on a totally different set of uh, calculus, I think, than uh, those of his opposition. So we'll move to the next question, and that would be, uh, what are the war aims at this point of Ukraine? And in this, we'll begin with Brian. Over to you. I think uh, the war aim is to just continue to wear down the Russian army. Uh, the American estimates are five to 6,000 Russian killed so far. The Ukrainian estimates are much higher, about twice that. But let's work with that lower American number of 5,000. Uh, and let's say it goes on for another six weeks like that's 20,000 Russians dead. About three times that wounded. Of course, not everyone's wounded in that. That's 80,000 troops are out of action, 75,000 out of action. Uh, I, you could see uh, paralysis in the Russian army, I think it's desertion, uh, people just refusing to fight. Uh, we're seeing some withdrawals in the east. the Russian army just start to break down. And before that, or attending to that, you could see some generals deciding that this war is no good for Russia, it's no good for the army, uh, and it's time to just sort of push Putin out of power. I don't know if they can tell him. I mean, if you look at the pictures of Putin at that big long table, it almost looks like he's expecting a one-eyed colonel to put his briefcase down next at the wolf's lair. But uh, they could just say, okay, uh, they don't have to say it. They just take Putin out of control of the nuclear weapons and then take him out of control over operations in the Ukraine and take him out of control of the military. Uh, it's the best thing for Russia. It's the best thing for the army. It's the best thing for Russia in decades to come. Doug, over to you. Uh, thanks, Ranger Doug. I, I think the Ukrainian, it, Brian articulated it uh, brilliantly by saying it's, the Ukrainians are all about a, a war of attrition against the Russians and to survive. That's it. To buy time. To buy time for Russian will to sell. Maybe a regime change in, in Russia, which I don't answer. Uh, but, you know, and also to give arrive and to be trained and be equipped and so I think this is just a war of attrition 
which is the only war the Ukrainians can fight because there's no military parity here. You know, the tremendous disparity in, 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 in metal, you know, and in numbers. I think it's fascinating if Brian's predictions are true, which I certainly hope they would be, that, uh, you know, the Russian army would, by, in technical terms, would be decimated with, I mean, by any, by any measure. And so perhaps maybe that'll give some pause or create the opportunity for some change. But again, uh, you know, as Brian said early on, and, and Richard uh, reinforced it, was, you know, personal decision. He's not taking input. Nobody's giving him advice. He doesn't want advice. He's never taken advice. He's always wielded power unilaterally and very personally. Uh, and this is a, a seriously emotional decision. So until he accomplishes his emotional objectives, the military objectives become less important, although there are means to accomplishing his objective of destroying Ukraine and you know, punishing an entire nation and punishing an entire society in very ruthless, very open and arrogant ways. Doesn't care about war crimes, doesn't care what the media are saying, doesn't care. He's impervious to an insoluble in international shame. Only hope that the Ukrainian path is part of their defense, and there's nothing they can do to let to manipulate it, they can take advantage of it is the disintegration of the Russian economy and the increase in ownership by a minority oligarch community, I hate to use that term, a group of oligarchs who will ultimately own about 99% of Russia's wealth by the time this is all over because Russian national wealth is all going to go to them. Putin's personal wealth, not in his name. He needs to remain in power, be powerful, and to be wealthy. And so the Ukrainians soaking world opinion, which does affect the oligarchs and is driving international behavior, sanctions are a perfectly good example, removing Russian banks from SWIFT. And so the Ukrainians certainly want to do that. And they are up to this point, and I can't remember which one of my colleagues mentioned it, Prior to the conflict, the Russians were best in class on information warfare. Look at 2016 in the United States. They were best in class. So I think the final element of, uh, of the Ukraine war aims is to uh, effectively use information warfare. Uh, the Russians prior conflict were best in class, and the Ukrainians have just showed them up and have just masterfully used information warfare, which is not only inspiring the Ukrainian people, but it's also affecting world opinion. I'm not sure that it affects Putin's decision-making because, again, you know, I think it's, as Brian said, you know, it's a unilateral decision made by him, not by Russia, by the Russia leadership team. But anyway, the, the Ukrainians, in addition to war of attrition, trying to buy time, trying to absorb all the Western aid, trying to literally survive and have an opportunity to create, you know, some sort of Western enclave where they might be able to kind of pitch up and continue to govern to a degree. I'm not sure the Russians will let them do that, but remains to be seen. Anyway, back to you, Ranger Doug. Thank you. Uh, then over to you, Richard. Well, thanks, Richard Doug. And, and let me just say, I think that Brian and Doug really covered that topic very well. I think the only thing I could do is perhaps add uh, a little bit on uh, the specificity of there. I mean, in terms of what Brian and Doug have mentioned regarding the efforts of Ukraine to stay, to survive and buy time, uh, you know, they certainly, as Doug mentioned, will go, uh, will continue this the marvelous information warfare that they've been doing. But they'll also, I think, they're on a, on a military level, they'll be continuing what is essentially guerrilla warfare tactics. You know, the Ukrainians have conventional war fair forces, but they, uh, they really shouldn't and are not going toe to toe with the Russians on a, you know, on a, in terms of conventional military confrontation. And the reason is the Ukrainians have limited military resources where the Russians comparatively have much, much more. 
depth and get, they can replace the planes and tanks and air armored personnel carriers and personnel. So uh, the, uh, I, th this hit and run tactics that we've been seeing in recently today, for example, surprisingly, you had a column of tanks go into uh, a, a city and was ambushed effectively by the Ukrainians. I think we're seeing those kinds of attacks it, it done very, very well. So they're not going toe-to-toe -to -toe in a conventional military confrontation sense. They're just going to, to hit and run as they should to wear down that uh, and attrit the, uh, the Russian forces. And then I think what you'll find in terms of, of maintaining that, that ability to survive and hopefully retain a government that can command and control or at least be uh, nominally do that, uh, symbolically, if only that, is the urban warfare. Once the, uh, once the Russians finish bombing uh, all of these uh, just horrific destruction in cities, they're going to they're going to go in to try and occupy it and take it over, and that's where the Ukrainians will be able to uh, to really have an advantage because from every window there'll be a sniper or somebody to to take a javelin and use it to uh, to destroy a tank or what have you. Uh, the, the Russians have to go by block by block, building by building, room by room to really occupy those things, and it's going to be very very tough. So I think it's it's. That's how the uh, the aims for the, the Ukrainians in terms of just attriting the forces. That's how they'll be doing it. But uh, I, I I agree absolutely with what Brian and Doug have, have mentioned. Now we'll take a break for a commercial. You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour with host General David Grange. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Attention, all U.S. veterans. You have served this country with honor and pride. So why is it so difficult to receive the benefits you deserve? Filing a VA claim is complicated. It's cumbersome and time-consuming. Many veterans have a problem identifying what conditions they should apply for. VDAC, Veterans Disability Application Caddy, is an online application that greatly assists you with filling out your application and identifying the disabilities that you're entitled to. The VDAC process takes about 15 to 30 minutes from start to finish. The entire process is simple and easy to use. The software automatically cross-references the VA database to determine what presumptive conditions you are entitled to as well as any secondary conditions. Once done, a fully completed VA form is generated with supporting material. To find out more, go to nifv.org and click on the VDAC button. Again, the website is nifv.org and click on VDAC. My father was the, the best truck driver I've ever known in my life. Like a family tradition. I'm a truck driver myself. I drove around the states with my cat. To be the truck driver, you not just only see where you go, you see the world in the larger perspective. This is a really good time to be in the trucking industry. The dispatchers get good loads for them. The equipment is very new and then it's very reliable. At GTS Transportation, we make dreams come true by employing truck drivers, dispatchers, mechanics, and many other occupations. Consider joining our rapidly expanding team where we put quality, human dignity, and respect back into the workforce. Contact us by visiting our website at gtscarrier.com or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. Welcome back to Veterans Radio Hour. And here's Ranger Doug. Welcome back from the commercial. 
This is our 18th program. This is in the series, Russia Moves Into Ukraine. This is part three in that series. So now we're going to move on to the fourth question, which is what can be done by partners and allies, NATO, the EU, the U.S., considering whole of nation or what I've described in a previous program that looks like kind of whole of world. In a rather unorganized way, the world has oriented on this and attempted to uh, dampen down the conflict and possibly cause it to, to cease but uh, the effect is still to be seen, and success awaits in the future. Uh, Doug, would you please take that one? Yeah, good question. Uh, what what can the rest of us do, you know, outside the conflict zone? Uh, and I think uh, the military options are, are very limited, uh, non-existent, actually, because of the credible threat that Putin made when he said anybody confronting military forces directly will face the consequences that your history has never seen, and that's coded speak. If you listen to it in the raw Russian, uh, it's coded speak for uh, nuclear weapons. And Putin knows all the cards there, because you can imagine, uh, you know, if somebody did something, some nation did something that was he assessed to be provocative, even if the nation in question didn't, and they have 15 kilotons over a small, small village, and there would be very little for us to do for a proportionate response if we wouldn't have one. So I think to your point is most of the reaction is exactly what's happening. It's the non-military aspect. It's all of the, all of the, all the D, the I, and the E, the dime uh, that's being applied here. And I think it's been applied in as effective a way as, as it possibly can. So the diplomats, the intel people, and obviously, you know, on the economic pressure against Russia. And as I said in my earlier remarks, I think it's the economic pressure on the oligarch and on the well-to-do uh, leadership of, of Russia, whose wealth is tied to the Russian economy, oligarchs tied to the global economy. But if you're estranged from the global economy, then the oligarchs are losing massive wealth and massive influence. So, you know, I think it is a uh, it is a, a UAP war at this point. Thank you, Ranger Doug. Thank you, Doug. The uh, abbreviation UAP stands for Unified Action Partners, which are governmental elements, non-governmental elements, and even uh, those of uh, companies that support uh, some aspect of uh, fighting diplomacy and other things. Richard, over to you. Uh, thanks, Ranger Doug. You know, I, I think what Doug was describing was that, that we're really in a unique situation here in that we want to support Ukraine, we the West, U.S., NATO. Um, but, and in some ways, the Ukrainians are actually fighting a proxy war for us against Russia. But while we want to support Ukraine for just that reason, we don't want to, we're in that situation, we don't want to escalate to a direct war uh, with Russia, because it could escalate to, uh, to nuclear weapons, as Doug uh, mentioned there. So it's a unique situation, but I think we need to do all we can to support Ukraine. And that, I, I personally disagree with the U.S. decision not to allow the MiG-29s from Poland to be given to the Ukrainians. I think that's something that would help. Anything we can do to help bolster the ability of the Ukrainians to defend themselves would be good. Uh, and, and I think even in, while a no-fly zone might not be uh, on the table because of the possibility and risk of escalation of direct confrontation, I think a humanitarian corridor. We could do a no-fly zone to allow the, uh, the, the, the refugees from Ukrainian cities to, to go out and leave Ukraine. I think that would be an acceptable kinds of thing. But other than that, everything we can do to uh, support the Ukrainians, uh, short of the risk of, of a direct, uh, escalating to direct comp uh, complications is what we need to do. Back to you, Richard. Doug. Thank you, Richard. Brian, over to you. Well, uh, this afternoon I had the thought that uh, Ukraine, the EU, and the United States should offer cash incentives and citizenship rights to Russian deserters. Um, they come over, they get several thousand dollars, might make you a Russian millionaire, give them like a roof for it, you say. Uh, I think you could see several hundred Russians a week 
freezing under those circumstances. And if, uh, let's say, a pilot came over with his MiG-29, that could be, uh, you know, several hundred thousand dollars there, at least South Korea, given the incentives to North Korean pilots, and eventually it does happen. Um, but I was thinking about this MiG-29 transfer issue with a friend of mine who was a uh, Tomcat pilot and Top Gun alumnus, and we were both baffled at why the West had this big PR stunt of, hey, we're going to transfer all these MiG-29s. They should have just flown them in under cover of darkness and not even mentioned it to anybody. Uh, so I think that was handled very, very badly. So I don't have any uh, problem with sending the MiG-29s. I kind of like the idea of undermining uh, or increasing desertion rates. You know, during our war of independence, they'd be offers to Hessians, that they would get land grants in Pennsylvania, and it worked out as well. Um, yeah, so back to you, Ranger Doug. Thank you, Brian. Doug, I believe you have another comment. Go ahead, please. Uh, yes, sir, I, I sure do. I think the other thing that's going to be interesting that uh, is when, as Richard indicated, and, and Brian as well, when the uh, when the guerrilla warfare kicks in after the cessation of lethality or kinetics and the Russians are now settled in to try to govern Ukraine, I think that the guerrilla war is going to be bloody and it's going to be enduring. But the most successful guerrilla campaigns in history have been when the guerrillas have safe haven and sanctuary, uh, the Taliban inside Pakistan, for example. Uh, and so you can imagine where the sanctuary and safe haven is going to be for Ukrainian guerrillas, possibly in whatever far territory that the Russians allow to exist in the far western part of Ukraine, but more likely inside Poland, Hungary, Slovakia, and, and uh, Moldova. Uh, is, is where it's likely to be. And, and that would create some, some challenges, I think, when Putin decides that he has defined supply and safe haven as antinomian and equivalency of direct confrontation. And would he be willing to engage the camps or the locations where the guerrillas were sitting in safe haven? It remains to be seen, but I, I wouldn't put it past them. So it's going to be an interesting situation for the the leaders of, of those countries when the Ukrainian guerrillas, not just refugees, Ukrainian guerrillas want to mount operations from that soil and strike against Russian military targets. So it would be interesting to see. Okay, well, uh, I would like to just add to what you all have said. Trying to assist them, it would be best if contributors were to provide items that the Ukrainians already could use without a lot of training. It occurs to me then that it would mean to, uh, if we have been training, and I believe we have been training them on certain Western systems, but they also have a great deal of capability with the former Warsaw Pact systems and how they may have evolved. The provision of those through cutouts so that they aren't attributed to any country, especially those that produce more than one casualty, anti-tank weapons, anti-aircraft weapons, and so forth being those. But the idea of transferring something sophisticated as a fighter jet, which might be configured for one country to another country, would seem to require uh, some kind of maintenance uh, and and an improvement of the capability of the aircraft to actual operational capability, the transfer of, possibly some training. And it might mean that the ability to use that aircraft was... Uh, long down the road. But that then also raises the idea of certain unmanned uh, lethal aerial systems that could be trained quickly and used immediately uh, without you know, resorting to uh, restoring them to some operational capability they might not even have within their own air force. And uh, humanitarian aid, such things as body armor have been mentioned. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that, that really could be done to help them. But some of the things are going to go towards uh, future phases if we're not careful. We've got to think about what to provide during this phase and obviously finding ways to make sure that it's not attributed directly to a, to a nation. So now we'll move to the fifth question. So what are we not seeing, in other words, in terms of tactics, weapons, capabilities? I mean, we don't see much in the way of air power. We don't see much in the way of massed forces. The logistic picture is bad. And like I said last week, that could be due to General Mudd. 
But uh, in terms of air power, precision fires, large forces, mass formations, special operations, and others, what do you think that means? And might we look forward to seeing some of this in the coming weeks? And to take that question, we'll go first to Brian. Okay, we see these uh, big red arrows in these big red occupied areas. But we don't really know what's going on inside it. Uh, is there guerrilla warfare? Uh, they've taken cities, and we see pictures of, of civilians pushing back, literally pushing back against armored vehicles. But are they throwing Molotov cocktails? Or I, I like to call them Lavrov cocktails now. Uh, is there organized fierce resistance in those red areas? Yeah. Doug, over to you. Uh, thanks, Ranger Doug. You know, what is it that we're not seeing? I guess I would answer that very simply in a variation of what Brian said, which is we're not seeing any improvement, which is a good thing. We're not seeing any improvement in the performance of the Russian military. They've certainly ratcheted up their barbarism and their use of indiscriminate area weapons against civilian targets, but that's hardly it considered to be a military improvement. So I am uh, astonished at how the inefficiency, the ineffectiveness, the lack of professionalism, the poor leadership, the poor followership that the Russians exhibited from the first time they crossed our line of departure and left out of Belarus, they left out of the separatist territories, or they left out of uh, the Russian motherland. Uh, the Russian military has not applied any lessons learned. It doesn't appear to me. And the only reason why they've been able to, uh, you know, progress as far as they have is indiscriminate use of firepower and the fact that they're overwhelmed by numbers of, of soldiers and, and vehicles and weapons uh, to Ukraine. So that's what I'm saying we're not seeing, that I would have expected, even if they began, you know, fairly disjointed and uncoordinated and not being skilled in the military arts, I would have expected the Russians to have quickly learned and adapted and uh, and really done a lot better. Having said that, again, you know, uh, a lot of that is due to the courage and the persistence of, of the U- Ukrainian defenders. Uh, full credit to Zelensky's army, to say the least. Anyway, back to you, sir. Great. Thank you, Doug. Passing over then to Richard. Oh, thanks, Richard, Doug. Yeah, I, just to follow on uh, a little bit with what Brian and Doug had said, I think, you know, the because of the poor performance of the Russian military, you're going to see this increased brutality uh, expressed in various ways. We've already seen it just as it is, using artillery and, and rockets into the cities. Uh, the question is, uh, will they be worse? Will they continue? Will they will they up the ante to use chemical weapons? Uh, you know, these continue to use these thermal bark type weapons in, in the cities. And I, I, one thing that I'm concerned about, and uh, well, Doug and Brian mentioned it, is that the uh, the nuclear question. I mean, uh, the Russians, as we noted in a nuclear posture review in 2018, have this doctrine we call escalate to de-escalate, where they may use a weapon, a nuclear weapon, to, to have everybody back off. And uh, because they have tactical nuclear weapons and might be inclined to use them, whereas on the U.S. and NATO side, we do not. In fact, our response would have to be a strategic nuclear weapon, which is an entirely uh, different level. And so, um, you know, would, would they, what is the calculus of the Russians, of Putin more specifically, in terms of what he's willing to do you know, to be as brutal as he, as he needs to be uh, in, these, in these cities to, to achieve his aims. So I'm, that's what concerns me about uh, where we're going in the future. It's really been a pleasure uh, to have this conversation with you and Brian and Doug. I mean, it's, uh, it, it is a terrible situation. I wish on behalf of uh, the U.S. and NATO, we could do more. But, uh, you know, it's these kinds of discussions that help people understand what's going on and allow us to have the kinds of conversations we need to to, to urge our 
uh, officials to do more and whatever we can to assist the Ukrainians. But thank you so much. It's been a, my, my real pleasure to participate. Thank you, Richard. Brian, over to you. By way of closing, I'll just say that uh, as dark as this period is, I, I genuinely feel privileged to see the courage and unity of the Ukrainian people. Back to you, Doug. Thank you. That was great. And uh, Doug, over to you. Hey, Ranger Doug, thanks. Uh, first, uh, I think I, I know I can speak for all of all of us here that uh, we deeply appreciate what uh, the, the Veterans Hour is doing. It's giving voice to the voiceless veteran. It's giving them information from colleagues. And so I think it's a great program and a great platform. And so um, I feel very, very privileged to have been part of it and be able to support it. Uh, my final comment is exactly what Brian said, which is the inspiration that you see by watching the Ukrainians fight the Russian military and the inspirational aspects of seeing their hunger for freedom and democracy and uh, the strength, the resilience, the patriotism, the passion for being free. It's just incredible. And uh, I hope that out of this tragedy, uh, that these Ukrainians didn't die in vain, perhaps because Putin will then want his raw hunger to recreate Russian, imperial Russia off the blood of freedom-loving people across the world. Uh, I hope that he sees how hard it is and how strong the freedom-loving people can be and that uh, maybe he'll think twice about going after the Balkans, the Baltics, going after Poland, going after Hungary, going after Slovakia and other countries that formerly comprised the Soviet Union. I certainly hope so. But anyway, thanks for giving voice to the voiceless veterans. Been a privilege. Thank you, Doug. I'd just like to say that uh, there's been a recent study that says that democracy is diminishing in the world. And the one thing that I'm struck by is the fact that the United States, by declaring itself uh, a republic uh, when it formed, allowed a lot of other nations to join it. And we really do have to think about our role as an example to the rest of the world. And that Ukraine is struggling very hard to try to be like us. I realize it's seen as one of the most corrupt countries in the world, but that's just the way things are. They're trying to make improvements. Russia is also seen as one of the most corrupt countries in the world. We simply have to reach down in the United States and figure out how we're going to support our friends and, and, and try to shame or change our enemies into doing something different. But uh, the one thing that we do here is we try to promote issues that veterans can participate in, understand. We have two other programs that, uh, that are out there. We also have this new software that allows veterans to apply for and check on their benefits. We also are on 10 platforms right now, including Amazon, Spotify, Apple, and an RSS feed. Uh, it's possible to, to subscribe to the podcast on any of those platforms. And in one area, Facebook, we've been averaging about 125,000 downloads a week. So that's, that's very good. We're growing. And we uh, would, would recommend that if you do like what we're doing here, uh, subscribe and, and see whether we continue to produce quality content, which, of course, we're going to try very hard to do. I'd also like to say that there's always the question asked by many, and the vets have been raising it in some of the uh, online chat rooms, uh, what about a draft? Well, you know, the one thing that we see here is the draft produces conscripts, and that's where the Russians are. Um, we have volunteers, and when you have volunteers, they want to be in the Army for whatever reason, and they may come in for college or some other benefits, but the fact is once they're in, they're brought into a cohort that cares about them, trains them, and as they become professional in the Coast Guard, the Navy, the Air Force, the Marine Corps, or the Army, uh, they end up doing quite a bit more than the conscript will do because they want to be where they are and they decide that it's good to try to protect one another and that moving forward together, kind of like our, our national motto, out of many one, uh, they actually do much better, not only in keeping one another alive, but in defeating the enemy. I think the Russians in this case have tried to supply or apply, I should say, tactics that we've used in Iraq and Afghanistan, this kind of shock and awe thing. But what that was followed by was the way the American soldier could turn basically on a dime 
and offer the hand of friendship to somebody who said, I don't, I don't want to fight you. I would rather find out what you have in store for us, and we'll try that. So hopefully we can see that moving forward. At any rate, uh, General Grange couldn't be with us tonight, but he will be next week, we believe. Thank you all for listening. And once again, this is Veterans Radio Hour 2.0. This is our 18th program. This is in the series, Russia Moves Into Ukraine. This is part three in that series. And, and our thought tonight was to end on the note of what are we not seeing and why? And we'll move forward to another program in this series next week. Tonight, we had with us Dr. Richard Downey, Dr. Brian Downing, and Mr. Doug Wise, who's a master of everything with multiple master's degrees and 40-some-odd years in the U.S. Army and the CIA, and all of them are good friends uh, of mine, and each of them now has an ability to build a friendship with uh, one another. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining us tonight. It's been a real pleasure. Well, now, the war shouldn't be over, and we should stop tiptoeing around the gosh-darn Russians. We're going to have to fight them sooner or later anyway. Why not do it now while we've got the Army here to do it with? Thank you for listening to Veterans Radio Hour. Veterans Broadcast Network, bringing you shows like Veterans Radio Hour, Wounded But Not Broken, and Roll Call. No one left behind.